Hello, and another podcast full of miserable news from St Paul's letter to the Romans. This week we move into chapter 3, but there is a major change in the chapter between 20 and 21, so I'm just going to uh, talk about the first half of this chapter today. Last week we had a, a somewhat miserable time when Paul had to take the Jewish half of his congregation down a peg or two. And he listed in chapter 1 that catalogue of sins which are the effects on our world when God says, OK, you want to live like that, I'm no longer going to try and stop you. Just get on with it. And it was quite natural, we said, for the Jews to hear that as a tirade directed at the Gentiles, who, to be fair, were quite good at some of the sins in question. But then Paul has to say to the Jews, look, you lot are no better. You might have the badge of circumcision you might have the word of the jewish law the scriptures but listen if you're not living it out then there's nothing that makes you any better than those who don't have those two privileges but now as we come to chapter 3 paul is going to restore the balance a little bit and we've already said that there is that delicate balance throughout the letter um, as Paul talks to the Jewish group and the Gentile group in the church who are um, in, a, in a somewhat tense relationship, let's say. So in chapter 3, he's going to restore the balance, uh, sort of, sort of. In case Jews think, what's the point then, which is a pretty understandable reaction to what he said to them in chapter 2 about circumcision and the law actually giving them no advantage over anyone else uh, that does raise the question what is the advantage of being a Jew what's the point of, of doing all this Jewish religious stuff that we're supposed to do and Paul begins in verse 2 to say much in every way first of all and we expect don't we a, a, a list with several advantages in fact this is the only one he loses his thread uh, after this one and goes off to uh, a different place but nevertheless Paul says there's there's much advantage and the first one is that you have been entrusted with the law the Jewish Torah you have got your advanced driving handbook to pick up an illustration that we used last time you might not always drive exactly according to how it says but at least you've got it and you could drive like that if you chose to you know what it is to drive well even if you don't always achieve it and just because you don't always drive well that doesn't call the whole thing into question 
I think it was about 15 or so years ago, there was a minor, minor scandal because the president of the Institute of Advanced Motorists had to resign because he'd got 12 points on his license and, and uh, was banned from driving. Uh, and that was highly embarrassing, but it doesn't mean that as an organisation, IAM is completely worthless just because uh, not everyone totally gets it right all the time. Now, Paul uses here for the first time a phrase that we're going to here again and again and it's built into a device that would have been used in ancient rhetoric we're going to see uh, in this chapter again to keep the balance nicely uh, one device used in greek philosophical rhetoric and another device used in jewish rabbinic rhetoric so paul is a, a master of both but the chapter begins with what's called diatribe. Now, we use that word in almost exactly the wrong way. We use that word to uh, describe a rant by one person. Someone bangs on and on and on about something uh, that they feel strongly about, rather like I did with Sharp Scratch at the end of last week's podcast. You, you might describe that as a diatribe, but there is an older meaning than that, and as the prefix die suggests, it's a kind of dialogue. There are two people involved. It isn't just a rant by one person. And in Greek philosophy, sometimes the, the orator would try to make his point by introducing an imaginary second person with whom he could have a dialogue. And the best way to think about it is an imaginary heckler at a stand-up comedy gig. The person, the imaginary person who does the interrupting is called the interlocutor because he speaks in between. That's what that uh, term means. And he comes along and sets up an argument so that Paul can knock it down. So watch out for that as we go along. And you can spot it through two things. Sometimes Paul says... Um, someone might say, or what if someone said, that sort of thing. That's the interlocutor speaking. And then Paul uses a Greek term, megenoito, which is variously translated, God forbid, or by no means, or not at all, or certainly not. Um, I think the best way to translate that is no way. Now learn that, meganoito, because we're going to hear it again and again as we go through Romans. No way is that true. And so in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, he wheels in the interlocutor for the first time. Does the fact that Jews sometimes break the law mean that the law 
and the God who gave it are useless, because that seems to be what you're saying, Paul. And Paul's response is, Meganoiton, no way. But this then opens up the way for another argument, and it sounds a bit silly to us, but we'll see why it was important to Paul in just a moment. The interlocutor, the interlocutor says, that's easy for me to say, if by contrast with human sin, God is shown to be even more righteous, aren't we in fact doing God a favour by sinning? If we make God, when we sin, if we make God look even more squeaky clean, surely we're, we're doing him good, so how can he judge us for that? And Paul in verse 6, Meganoitos, certainly not. How could God ever judge anyone if he was like that? How could he ever condemn sin if all he was after was enhancing his own reputation by contrast? That's not a God of righteousness. That's not a God who cannot abide sin at any price. And then in verse 8, he gets to the main point and the real reason, I think, behind the interlocutor's um, thing. People apparently have been claiming slanderously, Paul says, that he has been preaching law-breaking law -breaking as a way to please God. And you can see that, can't you, to the Orthodox Jews of Jesus' time, it was deeply offensive on those occasions when Jesus appeared to be trying to do away with the Jewish law as a way to get right with God. Uh, now, of course, Jesus had not come to abolish right living. Uh, in fact, he came to raise the stakes. You know, anger is as bad as murder, lust is as bad as adultery and so on. But things like healing on the Sabbath and declaring all foods okay to eat, you know, that stuff really upset the Pharisees. And so for Paul, who is preaching the same kind of a gospel, you can see how that could easily be misrepresented as let's forget the law, let's do what we like, and since the law is there to help us to live well, let's live evilly instead. And Paul had obviously been accused of of saying that. And so um, Paul says, absolutely no way am I saying that. So... After slagging off both Jews and Gentiles, Paul moves towards the conclusion in verse 9, and it's this, actually, none of you, none of you is any better than anyone else. And, and that's the bottom line. Whether you've got your IAM badge or not, you're all equally lousy drivers. And he tries to demonstrate that by using another form of rhetoric, this time from the rabbinic schools. It's called charats, and it literally refers to the stringing together of pearls. 
And the necklace that he forms in verses 10 to 18 is called a katina, which again is a, a word meaning a string or a chain, actually um, a bike chain or something like that, where things are joined together. And he quotes loads and loads of verses from the Old Testament strung together in an attempt to pile weight upon weight upon weight uh, of this argument. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Uh, and, and so it goes on. And he quotes from six different Old Testament passages to prove that all... And that's the key word, all have sinned. You can still, though, somewhere in the background, perhaps hear the Jews mumbling, well, that's about them, the Gentiles, not us. And Paul says, what bit of all don't you get? If these words, all of these different passages, are written in the Jewish scriptures, who are those scriptures given to? Therefore, who are they addressing? Duh, it's the Jews. That's what he's saying in verse 19. Therefore, no one, no one is declared righteous before God by keeping the law. In fact, the only purpose of the law at all is to show us that we're breaking it. And he's going to make that point again later. So we'll uh, just tiptoe past it now. Now you can imagine what a totally uncomfortable passage that would have been for Jews to hear. He starts by saying, you know, oh, of course there's, there's great advantage, many advantages in being Jewish. But actually, I can only think of one which actually does you no good anyway. Now, that, that doesn't sound great as an advantage. Uh, and so that begs, I think, two questions, one for Paul's readers and one for us. How then do we get right with God? If our whole culture, our whole upbringing Everything we've been taught, all our scriptures have told us that we get right with God by keeping the law. And then Paul comes along and says, actually, that's about as much use as a chocolate fire guard. What do we do? How do we deal with the fact that we're all sinners and therefore unacceptable? And keeping the law is not going to solve the problem. And for the Gentiles who haven't got the law, it's just as much of a problem. Okay, then how are we going to be accepted by this Jewish God? And that's the question that Paul is going to go on and answer next week. Second question, though, is this. If it's uncomfortable for the Jews to hear this stuff, what about Christians? How do we read this? And I'm aware that we could have listened to all these podcasts so far, kind of nodding our heads sagely and saying, yep, those uh, those pagans are dreadful, those non-Christians do live badly, but hey, I've got the church. 
is there anything in us which might be presuming? And have we any grounds for presuming? And if so, what? I'll leave you to think about that before we come back next week and look at the second half of chapter three and we begin to get some of the medicine into our systems having realised how sick we actually are. What exactly is this text saying to you so far? <laughs>